I'm Claire. And I'm Natalie. And we are a licensed psychologist and licensed school psychologist and a pediatric occupational therapist. And we are here to talk to you about stories of kids and adolescents who have maybe some struggles with development or disabilities, and also the parents and the caregivers and the teachers and the therapists who love them and work with them. We've divided this podcast up into two parts. So the first part is focused more on stories and experiences that we have and that parents have shared with us about their child um, with special needs. And then the second part, we delve into more details about those experiences and what we would do with them clinically if you want some more information on that. Yep. I think that's it. Goodbye. The following message is brought to you by our lawyers. A Little Cerebral is a podcast documenting a conversation between a psychologist and a pediatric occupational therapist. This is intended as a conversation between two colleagues. We are not providing legal, medical, educational, or any other advice, recommendations, or treatments through this podcast. I am here today with Dr. Vanya Page. She is a psychologist at Boston Children's Hospital. Her research practice and advocacy has focused on examining and reducing health inequities in children and families with a special focus in immigrant and refugee populations. Dr. Page partners with schools to provide clinical care, consultation, and training on development and implementation of school-based behavioral health services with emphasis in culturally responsive trauma-informed care and evaluation. Dr. Page currently supports behavioral health initiatives at Boston International Newcomer Academy, a high school for newly arrived immigrants and refugee adolescents. She is an instructor in psychology at Harvard Medical School. Thank you for having me. Yeah, welcome. Um, So we're going to talk about working with refugees and immigrants today. I am very excited. So my first question is not on here, actually. It was something I thought about later. And it is, so if you are working, if you're teaching at Harvard Medical School and working at Boston Children's Hospital, you must be friends with Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. (laughs) <laughs> I wish I was. Um, you guys hang out all the time. <laughs> I wish. Um, but no, I have never met him, unfortunately. Okay. I thought maybe he came. I do not have a cell phone number in my phone. Oh, okay. You guys don't like hang out or text? No, um, no, I wish. Bummer. Okay. So kind of moving along to the actual real questions. Um, <laughs> Someday, Dr. Bessel van is going to be a guest on our show. Absolutely. And all of our five listeners are going to be really excited. (laughs) (laughs) I'll try to get you a hookup, you know. Okay. (laughs) So, okay, so tell me about how you became interested in working with immigrant and refugee populations. Uh, well, I think for me, there's a, there's definitely a, a personal component to doing this work, and there's also a professional. Um, personally, um, I am a refugee myself, so my family um, came to the United States when I was 10 years old um, after uh, we escaped the war, the civil war in Bosnia, um, and we moved to Pennsylvania. Um, and uh, in that community. Um, I was the only English language learner in my school. Um, so the idea of supporting English language learners and immigrants and refugees was just not a um, common thing. Um, and I vividly remember having a fourth grade teacher because I was in fourth grade when I came. Um, this fourth grade teacher that would pull me in the back of the class every day and create these flashcards and cut out pictures out of magazines 
and you know create these notebooks of vocabulary and uh, do this journal back and forth with me about things I did over the weekend. And she just in- worked incredibly hard to catch me up. Um, and at the same time, you know, there was this interesting piece happening that they were noticing that because I was the only English language learner, they're like, maybe she has a disability. And then they were like, well, but she's really good at math. So I think I, you know, naturally experience a lot of what our English language learners experience in school. Um, And at the same time, if I reflect like on my educational experience, I always had teachers along the way that like rallied for me and supported me um, through schooling. So there's that huge piece, right, of my own immigration journey and my families and navigating a new culture and a new place and missing my family and experiencing trauma when I was little myself. Mm-hmm. And then um, I started graduate school um, at University of Northern Colorado in Greeley. And there was, I, I was doing a first practicum um, at a local high school. And I was asked to come in and there was a newcomer classroom um, that was being run. And they asked me to come in. Um, the teacher was like, can you just come by and like say hello to my students? And they would be so excited to meet another refugee. Um, and I, Claire, vividly remember coming into this class, like highly rambunctious, you know, kids are just doing their thing, not paying attention. There is this white person at the front of the room that does not look like them. Um, and I was just saying, hello, my name is Vanya. I'm a graduate student. And no one's paying attention, especially there's a young boy in the back of the classroom that I like noticed that was just kind of like scribbling and looking around. And at some point in my introduction, I say, and I too am a refugee. And I vividly remember like making eye contact with this young boy and he looks at me, stops, and just, I just see tears coming down his face. Um, and it was just this moment that for me, um, probably was more meaningful and special um, than for him. And, um, and it was, and really from that point on, um, I, all of my research, all my clinical work um, revolved around doing some form of refugee based work, whether it was with students, whether it was families, with adults. Um, But much of my training from that point on um, centered on um, doing with refugees. So a lot of that was in the schools and then there's, um, I don't remember the exact name of the center, but there's a refugee center in in Greeley as well, right? Yeah. So there was, at the time they were called um, Global Refugee Center. I believe now it's Immigrant Refugee Center for Northern Colorado. Um, But uh, primarily, you know, Colorado now back 10 years maybe had this huge influx of Somali refugees that came into Greeley. Um, Practically overnight, some 3,000 refugees came. Um, and, and they were moving there, right? The Denver is a resettling city. They were moving to these smaller towns because there were meatpacking plants um, and, and, and a job that they were looking for, right? Due to um, their own like economic needs. So they were moving to these smaller communities. And um, I got first involved there doing um, just some like I, teaching English classes and supporting. And then over time um, did more work around kind of helping with training and support for staff and families. Um, so yeah, it was very exciting. Yeah. That, and I, I remember hearing that like, so within the context of the meatpacking plants, like some, a lot of the Somali refugees, because so many of them were Muslim, they needed to like have breaks, right. To yes. do their daily prayer. 
And that, I mean, like that was kind of one of the things that was like a culture bump where people were like, what you like, you can't take a break, but it's like, well, they have to. Right. Um, I, I remember that, uh, I think I, I can't, I must've, maybe I was teaching at that point. I don't think I was there at that point. Um, cause it was, you said 2010, 2010, it would have been yeah, 2010, 2011. I yeah. yeah, I graduated by that point. But yeah, yeah, I just remember hearing that. And I thought like, I would never have, that never would have occurred to me as a thing. I remember it's, it's interesting you bring that up because I remember, um, I believe it was in Greeley that I was, maybe it's the same year I had this practicum where, um, I was working at the school and the principal had worked really hard to, um, create a space in the school where kids could pray, where Somali students could pray. And I remember the principal coming to me and being like, no one is using the space. Like, why aren't they using the space and being very frustrated and upset. Right. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was talking to a few students and just kind of asking them like, you know, um, do you, do you have an opportunity to pray during the day? And I remember this young man saying to me, um, so part of, traditional Muslim prayers, you have to wash, right, before you right. start your prayer. So um, this this young boy was telling me that he would go to the boy's bathroom and he would be made fun of for washing his feet and, and kind of cleansing his body before prayer starts. Um, and basically the bullying that he was experiencing in the bathroom was for him, sadly, like not worth the heartache for him then to pray, right? Yeah. But the principal didn't know that. Right. Um, and I, you know, I just think it's, it's a really like beautiful and important example of cultural, right. Misunderstanding yeah. and lack of communication that can lead to, um, you know, lack of services and supports for kids. Yeah. And I was thinking, you know, so the first place my mind goes to, and this is like a very Anglo point of view and also like a very special education point of view, which is self-advocacy. Right. But culturally, if you come from a place where being more direct is considered inappropriate, it may not be something that works for you or that would occur to you even to let a principal know about or to let a teacher know about, right? Like you asked a question and he answered it, but he didn't come to you and tell you that. Absolutely. Yeah. And depending on how long you're here, the type of, you know, experiences, the context you've had up to that point, right? Mm -hmm. Um, can all really right impact to what degree a student feels comfortable to right. right. Like if you had been in another high school or middle school or something where people weren't as accepting and it was pretty clear that you needed to assimilate, right? Mm -hmm. Like you need to be blend in, be one of us, forget who you were. Um, so your work is mostly school-based. So what are some unique factors that need to be taken into account when working with refugee populations in schools? Um, oh my gosh, so much. But I think, you know, I always think that the key is really understanding and taking into consideration the migration journey, um, that we cannot um, work or fully understand the students we work with until we take into context um, their experience in their home country. So what we typically call pre-migration, um, their migration journey itself, so their travel to um, the host country, in this case, the United States, um, and then the experiences they have once they arrive to the U.S., which is traditionally we call post-migration. So really, we have to look at all three of those phases um, and the experiences within each of those phases to think about um, 
a how to support and 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 more importantly what the needs are for students so when i think about you know pre-migration or you know their life back at home i think about um you know to what degree did the student experience stability and normalcy as just part of their daily life right um uh was there a lot of crime there was there um did they feel safe that's really important to kind of consider i think about um their access to education their access to healthcare, their access to good sanitation security nutrition um all while living in their home country i think about um, their exposure, you know, to adversity or instability of some sort. Um, were they separated from their parents? Were they, you know, did they experience significant trauma? Um, and then I also think about, you know, what is their, um, what's their understanding of relocating? Why are they moving to another country? Are they moving because their parents told them they have to? Are they moving because um, somebody is, you know, threatening them and they have to leave? Um, are they coming on their own? Are they coming with somebody? Um, so all of these pre-migration factors really influence then um, the school component, right? Um, and then when you think about migration, um, so this is the journey itself, you know, for some families that journey is get on a plane and come to United States. Um, for other families that journeys months, years, even generations to truly move. Um, and, you know, for some it's walking, for some it's by bus, for some, um, so this journey looks very different. And depending on that experience of that migration, it can really impact kids very differently and more importantly, supports. Um, I also think about, you know, was the family detention center? Was the family refugee camp? How long were they there? What were the conditions of, of those places they were in? Um, was the family separated during this time? Are they coming with their whole family or just with the family member? Most families I work with um, do not have the privilege to come with their whole family, at least, you know, not the first time. Um, and I think that's really hard for us to comprehend that you had to say goodbye to a family member that you may or may not ever see again. Yeah. Um, and then I think about financial obligations. Some families have to pay a lot of money to come here, um, whether it's, you know, for refugees, I think an interesting fact to always remember is that um, that they have to pay their ticket back that they come to United States um, and that they cannot begin the process of um, getting um, U.S. citizenship until they fully paid. So imagine coming from Somalia and how expensive those tickets are and coming with a family of five. Um, so that's one way. But there's also, right, we know um, other ways that families pay um, to cross the border for somebody to get them by. Um, and then they have debt for years to pay that back. Right. Um, so there's this pre-migration, this migration, and then there's really this post-migration, which is really one's life once they're here. And what I often see, Claire, is that people only focus on life in the United States. Um, and we forget that our families have had lives before they came here. Mm -hmm. Um, and often, you know, I, I think about kind of four things in terms of this post experience. It's really the resettlement experience itself. So how are they able to meet their basic needs? Do they have housing? Do they have shelter? Mm -hmm. um, can they pay their rent? Um, what is the context of reception? You know, are they, are they coming into community that is welcoming and it embraces immigrants and refugees? Or are they coming to a community where they had to hide their identity um, and um, they are threatened and discriminated against? Um, I think about their legal status. I think about healthcare access. These are all of these kind of basic resettlement pieces, right? 
Um, and then to add to that, you know, you really think about that acculturation piece of um, what is their family structure like here? Um, how different is their home culture from U.S.-based culture? Are they coming from a, a community, family-driven society, or are they coming from individualistic society? Do they live with other family members, right, multi-generational home, or do they live kind of in an apartment with just their family? So all of these changes, right, um, can really impact kind of the degree of acculturation adjustment the family takes on. How similar or different is their food from their home country, right? Can they find their food? Yeah. Exactly. Like, can they find a restaurant or a grocery store that carries the ingredients that they need to make a home dish? Um, can they find a religious or a cultural center in their new community um, that they can go to and speak their native language and meet people that look like them, talk like them, and have similar experiences? Um, I also think about psychosocial adaptation. So this is, you know, degree of isolation. Are they here by themselves or are they here with other people? To what degree can um, can they quote unquote blend into society here, right? Or do they stand out? Um, so for example, you know, when I did a lot of work with Somali mothers, um, because, you know, many of them wore a hijab, they stood out in the community. So they couldn't hide their identity that they um, are a Muslim. Whereas me as a refugee woman, and I know your audience can't see me, but I'm a white woman does not wear a coverage, right? So I share my identity um, when I want to. I don't have to. And that in itself is a tremendous amount of privilege that I carry that another individual may not be able to. Um, and then the final piece in terms of post-migration is really the educational experience. So, you know, like I was saying, to go into a school where there's a huge population of immigrants and teachers kind of know how to support is very different than to go into a school where you are the only English language learner at your school. Um, I also think about what degree of interrupted education that students have. Yeah. Any of our students, right, who are coming from war or, or um, conflict areas had interruption in their schooling mm -hmm. to some degree. Um, and I also think about, you know, in terms of schooling, what are their learning needs and supports and how can we identify those? Yeah. I mean, I'm almost thinking, um, and I think that, like a lot of us, um, probably we can't understand what it's like to have all of these like stresses upon our shoulder, like paying back that debt, trying to fit in. I can't find the food I want. Maybe I was a doctor in my home country and now I deliver pizza because I have, I, my medical degree is not accepted here. Um, and so the change in identity for parents. And then I think about like, all, I mean, if, you, if you're coming from Central America and you feel like there's surveillance and they're very well, I mean, there may well be surveillance on you if you're coming from Central America fleeing MS-13, um, you know, or maybe you were separated and then, you know, now there's reunification. School is, pri I mean, it, it's a priority. And I think in theory, it's like, it's important, but the day to day of school is going to feel like, how do I make this happen? And, and I actually think, you know, a lot of us couldn't wrap our head around it, but maybe one example is for all the parents who all of a sudden had to be like caretakers of their kids while working from home and like mm -hmm. doing online school, I think I can, I can say like school became less important. I tried as hard as I could, but Absolutely. I was, I was working, right? Like I had to work and I had to try to do school and I couldn't figure out like what they were doing some of the time. So me, privileged me. 
um, who is from this country, speaks a language that everybody else speaks, doesn't have these significant stressors. Like if even if I even felt that way in this like relatively small stress situation, can you imagine what it's like for a refugee family? I mean, it must be incredible. And yet, you're, you know, a lot of parents are still trying, you know, to make sure that kids are getting what they need at school. But advocacy may not be culturally appropriate. Advocacy may not be something that they can even, that even occurs to them because they don't have the mental bandwidth. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, what you're bringing up is like, you know, just needs, right? Which many of us during COVID, right? And when the, when the pandemic first started, we're just kind of focused on, you know, meeting base, is everybody safe? Is everybody healthy? Is everybody, you know, and that in itself, you know, overwhelms the body and, and our system. Um, and I think it's very similar, you know, when I do, when I, when I talk to teachers and families and, and, and do trainings around, you know, understanding kind of the refugee experience, I kind of walk through these three stages and then ask, imagine coming into an ask in a classroom being asked to um, do a math problem. Like, is that really that important? you know, given everything that's happening behind you. And, and I also want to say that for a lot of students, school actually becomes um, a shelter, right, and a protective space that they can actually leave all that stuff behind and focus on their future and it gives them hope and it gives them purpose and meaning, you know. So I think even though it is hard for students, often school can, depending on, you know, again, that context of reception and the supports we have in schools, it really can be a harbor and a safe place for a lot of students. Yeah. Um, I was actually thinking as you were talking about that, about you sharing your experience, like your teacher probably was not trauma informed. Your teacher probably didn't have like a master's degree in teaching second language learners. Right. Yet she was using visuals and she was taking time. Like there was stuff that you could always count on. Like there was relationship with that journal you could always count on her working with you every day on this or that the journal was going to happen at this time. And there were almost like these rituals or routines yes. that are so important for kids who are traumatized. Like in addition to all the stuff she was doing to help you learn, right? You, mm-hmm. I imagine you probably felt really safe with her. Absolutely. So safety, connection, mm-hmm. routines, rituals, right? All of these things that we talk about in kind of trauma-informed care that, and ultimately she was just a really good teacher, right? Like we always say that, um, if we just implement these kind of basic principles that that's a really good teacher. And, yeah. and there's a lot of teachers that naturally just do that. Yeah. Um, and it's just part of who they are. So if I was a teacher and I, you know, listen to you talk about pre-migration, the journey, post-migration, and let's say that in my class, I have some Syrian students. Um, I have some students from Guatemala. Um, and, you know, maybe I have a couple students from Somalia and I'm like, I don't even know where to begin in terms of learning about what life was like for them, where they're from, what the journey would be like. Yeah. I I have no idea where to start. I want to know, but I have no idea where to start. What would you say? Um, I mean, I think I always say first and foremost, establish safety and security in your classroom, um, regardless of who's in your space. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and that comes down to creating visuals, right? That, kids can understand having the same routines every day. Um, you know, not doing any, making any sudden changes in your classroom. Um, and that, that desperate need for repetition and safety, um, not assuming anything about our students, right. But asking, 
Um, and then I think second, regardless of where they're from, building connection, um, building a trusting relationship. So, you know, I don't, I often say that I don't think our students owe us their story or things that have happened to them, right? When they're ready and if they feel it's appropriate, they will share it. But our job is really to create a safe space where students can come and share who they are. So even though, you know, if you are a teacher and you may not know about these communities, you can bring in a map into your classroom yeah. and you can start, you know, having kids put a star where they're from. And then you can start doing lessons each week around like, you know, we're going to learn about Assyrian food this week. Or you can contact kind of local centers and ask somebody, you know, there are amazing organizations almost in every city um, that, you know, what we call cultural brokers. So people that um, work in, you know, different cultural centers or nonprofit organizations and are from these cultural communities that can kind of help say like, you know, this is, this is the traditional way of food, or this is, you know, to your point, Claire, earlier, like, this is how we show respect, or this is how, you know, this is how our schools operate. So there are definitely people in communities that, that can help you. But I think really just starting with your kids and just embracing and naming the places they come from and inviting them to share um, and inviting them to celebrate. Um, maybe every Friday, you know, they bring in food um, or different communities bring in food. So, you know, I don't, I, I think teachers, I love this question because I, I find it, teachers often get anxious. They, they need to know everything. Like they need to know everything about all of these communities. Um, and I just don't think that's attainable or fair to ask of anybody. Um, I think what they need to know is safety, connection, um, and really to create a space in their classrooms where kids can actually educate them and share who they are um, and not necessarily us feel the need to um, read everything and come in as experts. We are not experts from those communities. Our students are. I mean, and a lot of what you're talking about is like just good trauma-informed, um, I guess, trauma-informed learning environments, right? Where they're safe and there's like, routines. And Yeah, like I, I remember, uh, this reminds me, I did a, when I was, when I lived in Colorado, there's a a school pioneer elementary school in Fort Morgan, and they had a very large refugee population. Um, and this principal was incredible. Um, and she would just invite parents, the mothers to come in um, and to just like, you know, be in the classroom once a week. Um, and as a way to kind of like um, make sure that speaking of basic needs, um, that their needs are met. She opened up her computer lab at her school um, as like a computer class for the mother. So the mother said like, we want to learn how to use computers. Yeah. So this was a point of connection where mothers would come in and be part of this class. And then also as part of it, they could go into their kids' classrooms um, mm -hmm. and be part of classroom lessons or help clean up or do an art project. Um, and many did not speak English, but yet their simple presence in the building um, and kids seeing other people that look like them um, brought down, right? Brought safety, brought connection, and most importantly, created like a cultural language that, that yeah. people engage in. That's really, that's really incredible. And, and I think like to your point about um, the, like seeing people who look like you or seeing people from similar cultures. I mean, I, I will say, so my son, I guess, technically is an immigrant, right? Because he was adopted from Ethiopia at about age three. And even for him, like when he hit age 11, 10 or 11, you know, and thinking about his identity development, um, 
eating Ethiopian food became, we always tried to like take them out for Ethiopian food, but it became more important going mm. to Ethiopian church and mm. like, seeing people um, who look like him and having injera um, and having coffee, which by the way, they put like a ton of sugar in the coffee. He didn't have yes, like, they do. very sweet. I've had Ethiopian coffee. Yes. <laughs> he was like, this very, is very the coffee. And I'm like, well, there's like so much sugar in your coffee. That's why you love it. Um, and he's like, <laughs> and he's like, and that lady gave me extra injera. But I mean like, <laughs> yeah, but he, I mean, like, I think that, um, having those experiences and especially seeing other like boys who look like him. So boys who are adopted, but also boys who live in Ethiopian families. I think, I think that is really important. It's, it does a lot for him, right? Like he, um, it's like he brightens when he can see people who look like him because feeling different. I mean, when you're in middle school is already so hard for anybody. And then just imagine what that's like you know, if yeah, and often I've met a lot of students that um, are embarrassed by the term refugee um, and are ashamed by, you know, and I think this rhetoric has become even more um, divisive and traumatizing for kids in the sense that like, because of our current government and, and what is being talked about mm -hmm. um, these populations. So I think, you know, the more that we take time to make our students visible and celebrate actually that they're refugees or they're immigrants or they're, you know, um, however they identify is so important to your point of their own identity development um, and, and kind of finding themselves within that. And I think it's also important for kids who are not refugees or kids who might be in Absolutely. majority culture, right? Like Absolutely. Because I think that it's important for everyone to learn about other people. Um, and so I, I think that, like, I, I mean, I mentioned this in another podcast where, you know, I used to think like, okay, so books, you know, that have people of color are so important for people of color, but it's like, no, they're important for everyone. Everybody needs to read these books mm -hmm. and we need to see people in complex ways and in broad ways instead of like narrowly defined ways. Mm -hmm. um, and I think books help a lot with that. There's a book actually called Refugee. Have you read it? I've heard of it. I have not read it. It's so good. I think it's by Alan Gratz, Alan Gatz, Alan, I think yes. something like that. Um, and so there's pre-migration, migration, and then they don't talk, they talk a tiny bit about post-migration, but it's really pre-migration and a lot of it is the journey. And so there's like this contrast of a kid from Syria whose experience is like, you know, his house gets bombed and that's why they leave. And, and they survive, but they have to leave and there's always bombings. And then there's an experience of somebody in Cuba and mm -hmm. in the 90s and they're fleeing on a boat. Well, both of them are in boats um, at, at one point. The girl from Cuba is obviously in a boat for a long time. And then the, the person from Syria is in a boat for part of the time. And then there's a person also in a boat, I suppose, um, fleeing like Nazi Germany, but before um, the invasion, I believe it was like in fact in the 30s, before the invasion of Austria. Um, and, and people turning around, people in Cuba turning around the refugees and turning them back. Um, and that obviously resonates with some of our behavior now, but yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's for, it's like for adolescents, you know, I would say anybody who's like probably 11 or older, um, could probably listen to it. My son and I listen to it in the car because I'm like trying to, um, make sure that my kids think about everyone and people who are marginalized. Like it's, it's very important 
Um, I'd like to say I'm like indoctrinating them, but that sounds bad. But I, yeah, I mean, I kind of am. Like I have, I have another. Yeah, you're exposing them yeah, to opinions and experiences, uh, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then there's another book called Illegal. And it's yes. a novel. Have you seen that one? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, that's, again, for like, I would say age 11 or older, because there's some stuff in there that's like pretty sad and um, would be a little bit difficult for kids who are, you know, probably in fourth grade or, or younger. Um, but it's really good. And then there's, you actually introduced me to some kids books too. Um, yes. There, I'm trying to think there's a, I think there's a book called the stepping stone or something like that. I need to look it up. Right. That's, that's like, the of, yeah. and, um, and, and I think it's really, you know, I do think that despite all that's happening in the world, uh, you know, I don't know if you would agree, but I, I feel like it's really lovely to see more and more books whether it's children's books, whether it's adolescent books, whether it's adult books, um, they're celebrating and acknowledging and naming this yeah. journey and experience. And to your point, like whatever the identity is, right. Um, that I feel like was not the case when I was growing up. Um, or I would argue even when I was like in graduate school, I feel like the last five years have really kind of, um, there's been more and more stories and narratives that people are sharing. Um, that's really exciting. I agree with that. I was actually thinking about something similar on my run, how like how much the world has changed in the last 10 or 15 years since, you know, I, I graduated like 10 years or a little bit longer since I graduated. But even just some of the, you know, programming we had in graduate school, just how much things have changed in such a short period of time. Um, I have a few more questions. Um, my phone. Okay, here we go. So, um, can you give um, some ideas about mental health challenges faced by refugee students or their parents? Um, oh boy, we could, we could do 10 podcasts on this, Claire. Um, well, start I, the series. Let's do it. Yeah I, think, yeah. I think it's important to say that like, you know, every, every refugee will experience a degree of um, adversity, stress, loss. I mean, you know, in the definition of who refugee is, is this idea that, you know, you are fleeing because you're unable, unwilling to stay within your country of origin due to fear of persecution, right? Um, so we know that there is tremendous adversity that um, unfortunately is part of every narrative of um, refugee. And I would argue, and I know you and I talked about this before, um, that these, it's a very similar narrative for a lot of our students who are coming from Central America now too. Um, even though they necessarily don't carry the title of refugee based on, you know, U.S. Um, titles and descriptions, um, I think the narratives are very similar. Um, so I say that because I would say then that this idea of trauma is across all the stages of migration that, that we just talked about. So in that initial stage, there's often war, there's often some level of conflict um, and crime that families are exposed to in that journey in the migration stage there's often long and often dangerous travel of some sort or just even the unknown where you're going to right can, can be scary or if a child is detained and what that experience is like um, and then I think once they come here you know there's trauma in terms of family separation there's trauma in terms of community violence that they may experience mm-hmm. um, I remember when I was working in Aurora in Colorado, um, I remember talking to a dad from Syria who had moved his family and experienced tremendous trauma back in Syria. And I remember this this man saying to me, like, 
I came, like I, I took my family away from trauma and yet there is gun sh- gunshots in our windows living in Aurora in Colorado. So often, you know, our, our families continue to experience violence even when they come here. Um, there's fear of deportation for some families, which is real. Um, and, you know, there's hate crimes that our families experience. Um, so there's this trauma piece of migration journey, I think, that's always part of kind of the, the, the narrative. But I also think the piece that is maybe not talked about as much is the grief and the loss that many of our young people experience. So it can be, you know, um, the, the tangible, the real loss of family members or friends, but often they're grieving the, the life that they left behind, um, the family that they left behind, the culture, the food, the love of their country. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, there no one comes because they they want to right or they're excited to be here there's that really beautiful quote the no one leaves home unless home is mouth of a shark you know that i think about when i think about this is that there is tremendous grieving that our um families experience once they're here um and then i think you know as part of this mental health experience is also understanding of health understanding of mental health and well-being um maybe stigma around like you know um, I shouldn't feel sad. I shouldn't have these experiences. Or what I often find, Claire, is that it's kind of like a communal experience. So I'll have parents say to me like, well, you know, we all have nightmares. That's just like part of who we are. Um, or, you know, we all isolate ourselves and cry at night and don't want to, you know, don't want our kids to hear us crying as we miss our family members or we mourn a loss of a, of a child. Um, so these communal kind of trauma experience and normalize this experience when in reality, um, they're very much experiencing depression. They're very much experiencing trauma symptoms, um, often anxiety. So many parents report, you know, going to the ER for heart palpitations mm-hmm. and feeling like they're having a heart attack. But in reality, it's a panic attack, right? It's, it's anxiety, life and stress and um, adjusting to this new world and navigating it and figuring out what it is and, and often I feel like um, traditionally our medical system is not prepared um, to help understand and build that cultural bridge to help families understand like what's really happening and, and, and what this kind of stress of the migration experience um, can be doing to their body and, and how it's impacting them. Right. And I, on this podcast, I haven't really gone into trauma very much because I'm just like, I don't even know where to start, right? Like it could be a whole podcast. Yeah. <laughs> And I will. I'm going to. Um, great. So I'll come back. Sounds yeah. good. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. Um, I'm going to. Um, but I'm thinking about, like, I haven't really talked about, like, the ACEs study. You know, the adverse childhood. Wow. Is it adver- adverse childhood experiences or adverse child event, childhood events? Events. Um, it's events. Okay. Where you have, like... Um, a number of different kinds of experiences that would be considered traumatic. And the more you like the more of these experiences, the higher the number, yeah, the higher number, the the greater likelihood of all kinds of physical ailments, including things like diabetes, including Mm -hmm. things like cancer. So not just, not just things like, Oh, you know, it, it makes sense. There's like, you know, this, they would have like migraines or something because their, their muscles are tense because they're stressed and they're traumatized. It's like stuff that seems to come out of like left field. Um, mm-hmm. And so obviously this is going to affect our refugee population too. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So I was going to ask you also about 
you know, so if somebody's working with somebody who was in a refugee camp versus mm-hmm. just coming directly from the, their country of origin, like what are some things you would want them to know? I mean, I think generally speaking, you know, often refugee camps are overpopulated. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, almost always um, getting consistent access to education is close to impossible, um, especially secondary education. Um, I want to say, um, I read a statistic somewhere like 20%, if that, of refugees in refugee camp have access to secondary education. Um, So kind of think about that number in terms of, you know, um, that full experience. So, you know, we should define secondary education, actually. So high school, school. right? Um, Yeah. Um, So typically it's like eighth grade and, you know, and even then, depending on kind of your role in the family, right, Um, and gender roles and cultural roles and norms that can impact who ends up going and who doesn't. Um, So access to education, I think, is a critical piece to always assess if you are, you know, have a student that's been in a refugee camp. Nutrition. Um, to what extent do they have access to food and what kind of food? Sanitation. Um, crime is often very high um, in refugee camps. So, you know, the, the chances of uh, a child or a family member or parent experiencing some level of trauma is, is often pretty high. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think about family displacement in terms of, you know, was the family with, their, with everybody in the camp or were they separated? Um, and also length of time. I think, you know, I found it really, when I, when I worked with Burmese families, Somali families, Nepalese families, because these, you know, if you think about Somali history, right, um, the civil war has been brewing for 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had full generations that were born and raised in refugee camps. Um, so they were not born on Somali land. They were born in a, a camp in Kenya. Yeah. Um, like how does that affect your identity, right? Exactly. exactly. Or language, right? So yeah. some kids were learning. I remember when I worked uh, with Burmese families, you know, they were from Burma or Myanmar, you know, but lived in Thailand. The camp was in Thailand and they learned Thai, but their families, their parents, right, um, did not because they didn't go to school there. So there were all of these identity pieces that I think we need to really take into consideration you know, even when you ask a student where you're from um, and what, how even that question can carry so much weight for, um, for families. Yeah, I, I always think about, um, I think it's the documentary, God Grew Tired of Us, but it might not be. I um, love the documentary, yes. I think that's on YouTube. Like, I think you can just mm-hmm. access it. Yes, um, yeah. And because I, I showed it to my students when I taught uh, counseling diverse populations. I think we watched that and we watched a couple other things about Syria. Um, <clears throat> but there's this scene where these, these boys came from, they were like the lost boys, right, of Sudan and they escaped warfare. A lot of them died on their journey to the refugee camp. So there was all this grief. And, yes. then, and then they live in a refugee camp and then they all of a sudden come to the U.S., and some of them are older than others. And the ones that were older seemed to have a pretty strong sense of who they were and they did better. And then mm-hmm. the ones who were younger and were still kind of like figuring out who they were with almost like no guidance, right? Um, they had a hard time. And, and I think there was a lot of question like, well, now I'm in the United States and I, I'm black, right? So does that mean I'm African-American or... Mm-hmm. 
am mm-hmm. I Somali? What does it mean to be Somali? Yes. And, and there was also this scene where they are um, like introduced to their apartments and they like see a freezer for the first time and they like see mm-hmm. a flushing toilet for the first time and they like have to show them specifically how to do everything, how mm-hmm. to plug something in. Um, and it's pretty amazing because it's just something that you would never think about and you would take for like one, not you, one, like an individual, one of us would uh, take for granted. I love that you share that because I remember working with a student who lived in a refugee camp prior to come to the United States. And I remember he would walk around the classroom, Claire, and touch the walls of the classroom because this idea of a brick building was not part of right? His upbringing or, you know, having, you know, a trash can in your, and then throwing your trash in the trash can. And I think I appreciate you bringing this up because I think often, you know, if you haven't had experience working with um, refugees or, or people that live in refugee camps, we make a lot of assumptions about their behavior, right? We may see a student that throws a piece of paper on the ground and say, oh, they're being rude, right? Why aren't they throwing in the trash? Where maybe, right, this concept, just like you were talking about the freezer, um, or walking in a single file line, or, you know, asking, raising your hand to go get water, are all culturally nuanced behaviors that this student has not had exposure to. And again, if you're right, like property, like if I have a pen, and somebody is like, if I'm a student, and I have this pen over here, and then, you know, there's another student who's a refugee, where where they come from, the concept of ownership is different. It's more real. And now they, they take my pen and I'm like, they took my pen or they stole my pen, right? And it's like, well, they they didn't, right? Like they they had a different idea of what the expectation yeah. was. Yeah. And, and if you have been brought up in terms of like always thinking about safety and security, you know, then, you know, there, there is this need and we know this through trauma work. Like I know when I always run groups, um, there's never food left behind. You know, if there's ever an apple or an orange that's like there, students will always ask me if they can take it, you know, and, and often they're not taken for themselves. They're often taken for siblings at home or, you know, the idea of like leaving food. I, I know for myself, from personal experience, like food security to this day as a grown adult who, right, um, I would say has done a lot of work around my trauma history um, is really important to me. Like always having a snack in my, in my backpack, always having food in my house. Um, like I will stop everything to go to the grocery store. Um, you know, so that idea of food security is really important. Whereas like if a student takes those apples and oranges, again, we may look at that as like them being rude or them being, you know, um, taking other kids food. Um, when in reality, there is this need to protect um, and, and food is at the heart of it often. Yeah. That, and, and I think if you've, if you haven't been around somebody who truly has had food insecurity and seen like, it's, it's like almost ingrained in them. Yeah. I mean, my son, has, I don't want to go into details about his story, but I'm familiar with this because of one of my kids. And um, it's, it's almost like you can be cognizant of it. You can be aware of it, but it is so ingrained in you. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. You know? I think just understanding that. And again, empathy, like mm-hmm. about having empathy for people. Like even if you didn't personally go through that, thinking about like something that you struggle with and how you've mm-hmm. had a hard time with it and what it's like when you try and, and, you know, you have a hard time with something and, or people misunder like, I think especially none of us like to be misunderstood. Mm-hmm. None of us like to feel like we're not being heard. And, um, you know, reflecting back on those experiences of what it's like, I think can be really helpful when working. Yeah. And I always say like, you know, you, you brought up empathy. Like I always say like turn to wondering instead of 
you know, assuming. So like, you know, seeing that and saying like, Hmm, I wonder, you know, um, why they're taking that orange or, you know, like mm-hmm. turn to the wondering part of you instead of the part that like goes to, um, judgment or, you know, whatever the, the case may be. Um, yeah. because I think that creates much more room for empathy building and questions and listening and learning, um, for all of us. And I would actually add on to that too. Like in addition to the wondering, keeping it like really, like I don't mean present focus and as if you're not thinking about a person's past. But I think as a parent, and I think a lot, I think teachers too, especially teachers who are so, it's coming from a place of being invested in your mm-hmm. child and in your student. When you see kids do things and then you reflect 10 years up, up the road, right? Like when they're an adult, when they're a teenager, they, if they still do this, then X, Y, Z, right? Like they have to know how to do this. Or if they don't do this, then this is going to happen to them. And this bad thing is going to happen. And it's like, you go, it's like this, tr- like, you know, um, like it's like one thing after another. Sorry, I'm having a hard time coming up with the right words. But like, you almost are like living in something that's not even real. Like you're imagining this future that's not even happened yet, right? Like it's not real. What's real is now. And so noticing that when we get, like I know when I get really upset about something with my kids, I have to reflect back and think, like my own children, I have to think, is this about me being frustrated with what they did? Um, or is this about me being worried? Is there like a sense of worry in there? I love that. Fear about their future. Mm-hmm. And what's coming out looks like anger, but it's truly like a place of fear. Like mm-hmm. if they don't learn this or if this continues. And I think we have to catch ourselves. And like you're saying, go to that place of wondering. And I think that that can be really helpful. Mm-hmm. I love that. Thanks. I had to learn that the hard way. <laughs> it was a lot of um, trial and error before I got to that place. So what about the intersection of refugee status and disability? Well, I think it's important to start by saying that generally, you know, there is severe lack of data um, available that really regarding the number of refugees and immigrants that have disabilities. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's important because I think that gives us a baseline of, um, who we need to help, how we need to help, right? And to really understand the experience of, of families. Um, I think, you know, the, the big thing I, I think about is the educational context and experience for families. Um, that, you know, depending on, you know, what kind of a community uh, a parent comes in, they may not feel comfortable to disclose. Um, whether it's because of, you know, um, their fear of what that means, or whether it's because, you know, they may not actually know what services are available, um, and that they, their child has rights that they can access. Um, but I, and I also think there's a lot of unknown of, um, you know, what that experience looks like. I remember I've had parents ask me like, what do you do during testing? Like, are you putting probes on their head? And, you know, because often what they've seen is like in the media or the movies. Um, so I, I feel like there's, you know, there's a lot of unknown for parents that needs to be unpacked when it comes to um, refugee immigrant family, parents who have children with disabilities. So I think that's one. I think the other piece is often, as we just talked about, their journeys are arduous. Um, and I think, 
it's not uncommon for a child to have a traumatic brain injury, right, during the migration process or um, to experience the beating, to experience, right, due to some of the violence that they've lived through. Um, and it's then not uncommon that some of these experiences have led to some um, disability, right, like having to having a disability. Um, but often that's not talked about. Or because that experience is so traumatizing, um, it's not something that parents will share with you when they come in, right? Um, they relive it. School. Crying in front of you. They don't know. Exactly. Like, so often, and I think why it's then so important that as teachers or as clinicians, um, that we make sure we assess for these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that this not just not become like, oh, that was just part of their experience, you know? And I think the other piece of the intersection is that for many families that I've worked with, specifically if we think about um, Africa, um, the continent of Africa, or, you know, when I think about the Middle East, or if I think about um, even Central America, um, the notion of disability, right, and, you know, having early testing and having um, all of these resources is often unknown, that many kids are, um, due to shame, right, and stigma, um, uh, hidden. Right. Um, and they do not have access to good care. So, you know, I've had many mothers say to me that, you know, they feel like they have done something and this is their punishment um, from a higher power. That's why their child has a disability. Um, so I think all of these factors really then influence, um, A, early intervention, um, which is so important, we know, for um, students with disabilities. Um and also to really assess, and if you then add language, right, and if they um, do not speak English yet and trying to figure out, like, what's language, what's disability, what's, ex- what's cultural context, yeah. um, it, it becomes very muddled and, and it becomes very hard, um, I think, A, to identify, step one, um, and then B, really to, like, implement interventions and supports that are appropriate, culturally attuned, right, to, to that family. Um, but I think, and I would argue this is similar for U.S.-based families, right? I think the, the biggest work is really working with parents, um, yeah. getting them the knowledge and the tools and the resources to know that they have rights um, and their children have rights um, that they can access and that the children um, can live healthy, happy lives. Um, yeah, I mean, I almost wonder about t- explicitly teaching what disability means to us, right? Like as a culture, like I mean, um, in some places, maybe this is the norm and not giving locations of places, but just broadly. In some countries, people hide away their kids who have disabilities. In the United States, we don't do that. If you have a child who needs extra help, we have support for you. Here mm-hmm. is how you do it. You can talk to this person, like you could talk to your pediatrician, you can, which is probably where a lot of people would start. Right? Yes. Or you can talk mm-hmm. to, you know, there's this number you can call, which is probably not where a lot of people would start, but like kind of giving them those resources. Because I feel like, I mean, at least my experience in Central America was such that like, I mean, certainly if you mild, a lot of kids with like mild learning disabilities or moderate learning disabilities who couldn't pass like their grade level, you get like three tries and then you're like this older kid with a whole bunch of, you know, younger kids and then, and then you're out. And so mm-hmm. and that's, that's just like, people wouldn't look at you and know you have a disability, right? Like that's just mm-hmm. um, a visible disability. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose that would be the same for kids with pretty significant ADHD, but for kids with significant like disabilities, so an intellectual disability, downs, um, aut- it's like pretty significant autism, 
um, or anything like cerebral palsy, you know, all, all like all sort of things that are more visible. Um, and I know autism isn't always visible, but I'm talking about like very visible when you're interacting with that child, you know, yeah. somebody significantly impacted. Those kids are often hidden away. Yes. And like people who have known people, I mean, I remember like somebody I knew telling me that she had this friend she'd known for like 20 years and she had no idea that there was this whole other kid in the house that had been hidden away because he has a disability. And it's like a cultural thing too, where kids are discriminated against. Like, okay, you have to pay a separate bus fare for your wheelchair. And no, I'm not going to help you get the wheelchair on the bus. So you're going to have to lift your kid out of the seat, put him on a seat. You're going to have to get the wheelchair. Everybody's going to look at you like you're really putting them out. And then you need to pay double, like you need to pay triple, like, sorry, an extra for an extra person. Cause like the wheelchair counts as an extra person. So you, your kid, the wheelchair. And, um, I mean, it's like, I think that in a lot of places, it's just disability is not something that's a priority. And I want to be really clear. I understand that some of that has to do with poverty, but there are wealthy countries. But I think, Claire, I think what you also bring up is that, you know, as part of being a refugee, you have to do a medical exam. Um, you know, and this medical exam determines potentially whether you are given the green light to travel to the U.S., um, and I don't think we talk about this enough in the sense that, you know, who gets that green light, um, and which families are, you know, allowed in. And like, I have to say, I have not read up on this, but I, I also wonder, it makes me wonder as we're talking, like, um, do families sometimes have to hide these pieces, right? In order for their, for their child to be able to come here, or do they have to make really serious decisions, you know, of, um, do they come or do not come if one of their children can't come with them? Um, so I think that's also a piece of, you know, um, it, that's why I'm saying like, what is their political, cultural, you know, uh, experience when it comes to disabilities in itself, whether it's home country, but it's also here in the U S um, that is kind of framing their lens um, into how to support. And, you know, I think it's, it's really interesting what you said earlier about, I did some home-based work a couple of years ago um, and you know, the phenomenon you just brought up, like I would totally have, you know, I, I would be working with a family and all of a sudden other family members like aunt with another child would start coming over just at the same time that I was there. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was often, you know, um, you know, both kids had significant disabilities, but they were very young and like parents didn't understand what was still happening. So I think I, I bring it up in a sense that like why trust and connection is so important right. that, you know, I can't do teaching and I can't, you know, um, say to parents to trust me or to share with me what's happening until they have seen, um, somebody in me who they can trust and go to, um, and who looks out for the well-being of their child. Because one of the scariest things often for many, um, immigrant refugee families is that their kids will be taken away. Um, so many families carry this fear that if they say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, um, that, you know, the U S government is going to take their child away. Um, so often these really hard things that they're going through, they don't feel comfortable sharing with us because they're afraid that I will report them to, you know, somebody and that their child will be taken away from them. Um, so I think we have to keep that in mind, you know, even when we ask questions, when we build connection. And going back to what I was saying earlier, that really invite them to share when they're ready instead of um, demanding question, you know, answers from them um, to, you know, implement interventions. 
that's, that's all really helpful. I think um, this is going to be really good information for like just anybody, any humans like walking around just so we know how to interact with our fellow human beings. But also I think especially, you know, providers or school staff who work with um, refugee families and refugee kids. So thank you. Thank you for being a part of this. I appreciate it. This was a great interview. Um, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'll call it when we do, when I finally like address trauma and like figure out how I'm going to do all that, maybe I can have you on again. <laughs> that would be great. What a, what a complicated topic, but important topic. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Well, um, it was great having you on the podcast and thank you.